hello in this week's UN Catch-Up with me, Daniel Johnson, first-hand information on the continuing humanitarian and security crisis in Ethiopia's Tigray from the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. An alert from the Central African Republic, where fighting between government forces and rebels in the north of the country has forced thousands to flee. And a warning from UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres that the world is on the edge of an abyss from climate change at the White House's Climate Leaders Summit, as the UN Refugee Agency unveils new data showing that climate shocks have displaced twice as many people as conflict in the last decade. All this and closing comments from regular guest Solange Behotege Cortes. Thanks for listening. First, the news. The world is teetering on the verge of a climate abyss because of rising greenhouse gas emissions, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said on Thursday, at the start of the Virtual Leaders Climate Summit hosted by the United States. In an appeal for all countries to make more ambitious pledges to cut emissions, Mr Guterres warned that the past decade has been the warmest on record, and that the Earth is already 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial era. We're racing towards the threshold of catastrophe, he said. The UN chief's comments come as the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, published research showing that weather-related crises have triggered more than twice as much displacement as conflict and violence in the last 10 years. From Afghanistan to Central America, droughts, flooding and other extreme weather events are hitting those least equipped to recover and adapt, said the UN agency, which is calling for countries to work together to combat climate change and mitigate its impact on hundreds of millions of people. Since 2010, weather emergencies have forced 21.5 million people to move every year on average. UNHCR said that roughly 90% of refugees come from countries that are the most vulnerable and least ready to adapt to the impacts of climate change. These countries also host around 70% of people internally displaced by conflict or violence. Fighting between government forces and rebels in Northern Central African Republic, or CAR, has forced more than 2,000 refugees into neighbouring Chad in the past week, the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, said on Tuesday. Those reaching Chad reported fleeing clashes as well as pillaging, extortion and other acts of violence at the hands of rebel groups. Most of the displaced are from CAR's Kaga Bandoro, Batangafo and Cabo regions, and they risked their lives crossing the Grande Sido River to reach safety, said spokesperson Baba Baloch. To reach Chad, people had to wade shoulder deep through the Grand Sido River, with some carrying their few belongings on their heads. The refugees are now settled in Gandaza village uh, inside Chad, on the other side of the border, uh, in, uh, near the border town of Sido, although some are having to resort to cross back into CR to find food or salvage what little is left from their properties. Chad hosts close to 11,000 of the 117,000 Central African nationals who fled violence to Cameroon, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the Republic of the Congo since post-election violence in December. Finally, good news from Syria, where more than 250,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccine have arrived for frontline health workers from the UN-partnered COVAX scheme. The bulk of the AstraZeneca vaccines from the Serum Institute of India reached Damascus and more than 53,000 doses were delivered to the northwest, where conflict and displacement have continued. Ahead of further deliveries in coming weeks, UN humanitarians said that Syria's health workers needed much more help wherever they are in the country.
So too do those most at risk, the elderly and those with underlying health conditions, said COVAX partners the UN Children's Fund UNICEF, the World Health Organization WHO and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. To date, Syria's official COVID-19 numbers indicate around 50,000 cases of new coronavirus. The actual number is likely much higher, owing to limited or unavailable testing supplies in the country after 10 years of war, said UNICEF and WHO. The news there, and this is UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. Now to Ethiopia's Tigray, where people's lives have been upended by nearly six months of fighting between government-backed and separatist forces in the northern region. The conflict couldn't have come at a worse time for the mainly farming communities who couldn't harvest their crops when the conflict started. Today, more than a million people are displaced, and as we often hear from humanitarians, it's the women and children who suffer most. There's been widespread violence that's destroyed hospitals, gruesome sexual attacks on youngsters, too, as I've been hearing from UN Children's Fund spokesperson James Elder, who's just back from the conflict zone. I think the latest from Tigray is that the situation is not improving, that there's just so many people who've lost so much and it's still an active conflict zone. So you've got either people who are sheltering, people who are still caught in the crossfire or people who are suffering violations because this is a conflict zone and there is looting and there is sexual violence. It's an awful time, an awful place for kids. Tell me about some of those stories then, some of the victims. I know in an earlier press conference you mentioned one girl who walked 300 kilometres on foot. Yeah, there's so many things that are so startling and on one hand so heartbreaking and at the other side such such testimonies to what people will endure. The little girl was 16 years old. She had four siblings and they, you know, her brother and father had been caught in the fighting in the west of the country and the family fled without them. And she went 300 kilometres and in broken flip-flops carrying her little brother on her back. I mean, she says all this, you know, not to create sympathy, but just because this has been her story. Um only support she got on the way was from from any communities, anyone that could give them anything. But obviously, they didn't. They went days and days without food. She said she saw so many dead bodies, uh, and obviously that was something she hadn't endured previously. And now, of course, was like so many of these kids, desperately looking for some support. They, the children, UNICEF is seeking to help. But as I say, there's such a huge number at the moment, such a breadth of need, so many kids out of school, so many kids facing nutrition crises, so many water systems are smashed. You know, we have a pretty incredible response right now. It's up to sort of 600,000 plus people reached with safe water. But again, security, law and order, these things are really critical to enable our response to reach all the children, like that little girl, Mary Watt, who I met. Those are the children that need support, but... Again, to do that, we've got to see an end to looting. We've got to see an end to violence. We've got to see, um, you know, un- unfettered access because at the moment you have a nut- potential nutrition crisis. These people remembering it, I mean, there was some really good agricultural setups, some really modern water systems, um, but the conflict started in November. That was the time to harvest. That was the moment that people would have actually been getting their crop for a year, which is food and a cash crop. Food and income for the next 12 months. They didn't get that. Now they can't plant. These things are obviously really, really worrying for, for, for UNICEF and in many other UN agencies. Um, yes. This is the crisis we're looking at. Yes. Uh, who is doing this looting? I don't think there's a single force, but it, when you're in the west of the country and there was certainly a discussion there about uh, about Eritrean forces, and we now know that Eritrean forces have been in the country, are probably still there. Let's just go back to the young girl, the 16-year-old Mary, who you mentioned. Where is she now? 
So she's now about 100 kilometers. She ultimately went 500 Ks to the last 200 kilometers. She was, she was transported, she was in a bus. So she's now um, you know, in an IDP, in a, in a settlement for displaced people, about 100 kilometers from the capital. We're looking to get her at least into a temporary learning space. She's really clever, hey? She, her favorite subject, she didn't want to be a teacher or a doctor. Her favorite subject was physics. She explained to me how she used to make things. She liked innovation. They, they were her words. I like innovating. And she, you know, used before old magnets and bits of scrap metal and so on. And she used to make, you know, electric trucks and so on. So a really, really clever girl. And she was out there. She sought us out. So, you know, these are really proactive, strong, brave kids, but they're having to do things that, you know, adults would hope never encounter in their lives. Sure. And you also have recorded a lot of reports of gender-based violence, sexual violence, sexual attacks. What does UNICEF do with this information? Well, we do a couple of, I mean, yeah, they, they, were, they were harrowing, I have to say. I mean, in situations like this one where, where fighting is so often taking place, not in a battleground, but it's where people live. And so, you know, civilians, women and girls are then being, you know, targeted, direct targets of this violence. And some of the level of cruelty was just, was, was incomprehensible, I have to say, before, before going into what UNICEF does. But we have a, we have a large range of response. So firstly, yes, we, re- we do report these things. We keep records and so on and so forth. So people's stories are told. These are very brave people. We also know that this is probably a tip of an iceberg. It's very difficult to report. It's difficult culturally. It's difficult because there's a conflict it's difficult because transport is expensive and often you can't get that transport and then as a response what do we do well unicef provides medical assistance psychological assistance things like dignity kits which come with various things that women women need um but more more resources are needed but that's very very clear you need law and order we need unhindered access we need more mental and psychosocial support for people, more capacity to address this kind of conflict-related trauma. And of course, I guess, first and foremost, you know, authorities need to publicly denounce these attacks, perpetrators of sexual violence during armed conflict are violating international law. So they must be held accountable and then there must be resources so victims can seek justice. What's your access actually like there? I mean, is there also internet access for people? The access is a mix. As I say, officially, you know, it's, it's full access and it's definitely better than a couple of months ago, no doubt. But we are into the sixth month of something that's displaced, um, you know, upwards of a million people. So the access is theoretically always there, but on the ground, no, there, there will be days where you can't go to an area you need to go to. And that's, that's really critical when you look at some of the report that we're actually talking about. I mean, for example, because as you rightly mentioned, We've seen so many, so many health centres and hospitals damaged or looted. And here I talk of, you know, I saw a health clinic that was state-of-the-art, built last year, operating ward for emergency C-sections and so on, and had just been totally turned upside down. So what UNICEF had done, we've, we've supported partners to kickstart about 22 of these mobile health and nutrition teams. They're really, these are frontline, you know, physicians and trained workers who are reaching tens of thousands of kids in some of the most difficult areas. And that's everything from severe malnutrition to helping a woman if she needs to give birth. But I heard just today that in the last sort of two weeks, UNICEF has received reports of at least 16 incidents involving these health and nutrition mobile teams where they've had to leave because of fighting, because of death threats, where they've been forcibly relocated to other locations. 
Thank you to James Elder from UN Children's Fund UNICEF for sharing what he saw in Tigre in the conflict zone. Solange Bertegui-Cortez, you are with us again this week. Thank you so much for your time. Um, really tough to respond to what James said there because there was so much to take in. What do you want to share? Hi, Dan. Well, I've run out of words. As James Elder said, the level of cruelty is incomprehensible. What he describes, it's so terribly clear. It hurts. Every individual story deserves to be heard, deserves a tomorrow. I kept thinking about the image of the 16-year-old girl, Merhawit, walking 300 kilometers with her baby brother on her back from the west of country, looking for food, saying dead bodies on her way to nowhere. That girl walks to survive. We must walk with her, share her hope, give her hope. In conflict zones, battles happen over women's bodies too. A woman's body becomes a revenge territory. Unfortunately, this is not a reality only in the Tigray region. Rape has been widely used as a weapon of war. Although it is banned by the Geneva Convention along with sexual violence and female genital mutilation. The body of a raped woman carries all the horror of war. Gender-based violence results in physical, sexual, and psychological harm. Violence attacks them in the most intimate part of their bodies. We must recover each of those bodies, each of those lives, victims should see justice. The question is, how can anyone re-emerge from experiencing such horror? Rape survivors are still grappling with trauma and stigma. How do they express their suffering? What language they use? Can they still sing? Would they be capable of X-raying horror without making their wounds bleed? What will we do today? to secure tomorrow. Thank you, Solange. One of the things that I think the UN is very clear about is calling for accountability and justice for all abuses, whether it's victims of sexual violence, of torture, of enforced disappearance, genocide, you name it. It's what many victims want too. The problem is that there's such stigma associated with rape that securing victims' testimonies is extremely difficult, if not impossible. But according to UNICEF, one single centre for survivors of sexual violence has been taking three witness statements per day between the 1st of January and the middle of this month, and that's just one reporting station. The next challenge is bringing those responsible for the crimes to justice, which is also very difficult in places where conflict has destroyed the physical infrastructure of courthouses. Although the UN Rights Office, OHCHR, has a lot of experience in advising on how to set up hybrid courts to deal with particularly grievous crimes. I won't go on as our time is up. Thank you for lending us your ears for the last 15 minutes. We really appreciate your interest in what the United Nations is up to. Thanks once again to you, Solange. See you, Dan. And to production assistant, Justine Bryce, who'll be putting this online in a jiffy. So until next week, stay safe and stay well. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>